Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Right, I'll make a start. I've promised um, Lydia and Trish that I'll only be about 35 minutes. I feel like I've lied already. Um, so, we're going through this whole uh, series. So, so Steve did the three weeks about being a Barnabas community and then Adam and Steve both talked about what's in a name or, or name change. And so I'm going to uh, carry on uh, with that idea. And the basic move that I'm going to make this morning is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, um, to so talk about how changing of name... Is, is always, always, always uh, connected with community. Um, and also, it's always connected with possibility. So if you heard me talk about hope, hope is this idea where we've run out of possibility and hope is, is the revelation or an opening up of new possibilities. Um, and so name change is always connected with community and it's always connected with a creation of possibility where there was no possibility or where there was a limitation of possibility before. And, and the idea is, is both of these things are synonymous with tying into the purposes of God, the promise of God that runs through the entirety of Scripture and creation. Um, so I'm coming to a conclusion over the last sort of 12 months that there is nothing in Scripture that it is to do with the individual. Um, God isn't interested in individuals per se. In terms of he loves each one of us, etc. But he's not created us to be individuals, to remain individuals. But that everything in scripture is orientated towards God wanting a people in the earth. And this runs everywhere. So just, uh, just out of interest right now. Um, if you look at all the healings of Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, all of those healings, whilst they are miraculous in and of themselves... They are all aimed at repatriating somebody back into the community who's been marginalised from that community. So if they are uh, suffering from something that makes them unclean, Jesus makes a public spectacle of them by repatriating them into the community. Um, If they are people that have been pushed down, so children and women, he makes a thing about bringing them back into the community. If they are unclean foreigners, he makes a thing about them coming back into the community. Even in the parables, we see things like the prodigal son. Why does the father throw a party? To let everybody else know that he's endorsing his son. Because nothing happens in isolation. Nothing, especially in the context of the Bible, in the world that they lived in, nothing happened without the complete knowledge of the community that surrounded them. So everything is about having a people. And so the move I'm going to make this morning is connecting name change to having a people. So if you want to turn with me to um, Ephesians 3, uh, first of all, I've got to recommend listening to uh, what Adam shared a couple of weeks ago. Um, And so basically, he covered all of the things that I wanted to say. And so in the last two weeks, I've had to just make something up. Um, But he did get to this point uh, about name change. So when we talk about name change, we're not too fussed, particularly about having our names changed. Okay, let me just make... So we're not going to have a ceremony where we all change our names or anything like that. The idea of name change, it's a metaphor within Scripture. Okay, so yes, people did physically get their name changed, but it was all pointing towards something functional, something purposeful. And so when we talk about a name, we're not just talking about a label that we call somebody by. We're talking about um, their function, their identity, their purpose, their, their promise, their calling, their potential, and their um, sort of sphere within a greater sphere of community. Um, so Ephesians 3, from verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So the point of us having our individual names, so, you know, at one point, you know, I might decide that I want to be called the Hulk because I've always wanted a name starting with the. Um, but it doesn't matter because my my identity is subsumed within the Father, from whom the whole of heaven and earth derive its name, so that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. So notice within what Paul's talking about, first of all, he's not writing an individual letter to an individual person. He's writing to a community. This letter isn't like letters that we receive. It'd be something that we would read out <coughs> in community. We'd debate, we'd talk about, you know, oh, what do you think Paul means there? And, and the guy that he sent the letter with would be on hand to say, well, when Paul was writing this letter, this was what he was talking about. So all of the letters in the New Testament, Paul sends with somebody he trusts to be able to help interpret that scripture. So it's never, when it says you, it's never you individual, or sometimes it is, depending on the grammar and syntax of the sentence, obviously, but most of the time it's to a community. And notice that deep within Paul's language is a communal aspect, that you would know along with all of the saints, that you would be filled with the love of Christ, that you would, the fullness of God, all, all of these, these words indicating a multiplicity of people, a multiplicity of understanding, um, an interconnected relational thing that's going on here. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever, amen, into uh, chapter 4. Therefore I... So now he's referring to himself in the singular. The prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance of one another in love. So he starts out his prayer saying that we're all named because of the Father. We're all included in this thing. All of us together, we're all included. And now he moves, he makes um, a transition into talking about how do we deal with one another. Because we're all in this together, so now it's important that we, we learn and we are equipped to actually live with one another. Because we all know that we're not all perfect, that we'll rub each other up the wrong way, that we'll get annoyed, that we'll get frustrated. Um, and so now Paul is dealing with how do we interact within the Father. It's not just this perfect idea, oh, we're all, it's all in love, it's all in Christ, so we're all friends and we're all buddies and it's all lovely. It's like now, like you have to have certain things in place else this is not going to work. So, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, so intolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit. So how many are there? There's one body. Okay, there might be, you know, 15 of us in this room, but there is one body. There might be 200,000 churches in the Midlands area, but there is one body. There might be 10,000 different denominations in the world, but there is one body. Because there is one spirit, and just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of, of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then he goes on to say, but to each one, so each individual has been given a gift. Um, so grace, uh, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, when it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression is a, a side point. He ascended. What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended himself, also he ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So notice this kind of juxtaposition of all things, all of you, there's one. All things, all things, there's one. There's individuals, but you're all one. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the works of service, the building up of the body of Christ. So why are they gifted? To build everybody up in this one. So individuals are given gifts to build everybody up in a community. I'm not given gifts so I can get up and get my rocks off and say, hey, look how awesome I am. Even if I don't actually say, hey, look how awesome I am, I'll just publish a bunch of books and, and have a ministry with my name on it. But that's not the point. It's for equipping everybody else. Until we attain unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure and stature of which belongs the fullness of Christ, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So, <clears throat> here we have um, Christ filling all in all, that we're all in him, we're all one in him, that we're all individual personalities, we're all individual callings and giftings and functions and identities, but all of those things do not exist for ourselves. They exist for everybody else. Okay, so that's, that's where I'm going with this, that there are individuals, but everything is for the purpose, the singular purpose of building up a people of God in the earth. <clears throat> so names that are given or changed are not just for the individual so throughout scripture and we're going to have a look at this in a little bit um, they're not just for the individual the purpose, the identity, the calling the potential of an individual is not for that individual but it's for a community or um, and I like this phrase the interdividual so Paul culminates this sort of prayer saying that the whole body is fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. So my purpose within the body is to supply something. And that only works if there are other things that need supplying. Yeah. It's an interaction. Our body is not um, just a bunch of individual parts. You know, like if you dissected me or whatever, I would be a bunch of individual parts. But all of my body interacts with itself to create my motion, my movement, my awareness of my physicality. None of it is separate, none of it's individual. Like this finger, like if I, if I um, hit that finger with a hammer, my whole body would tell me about it. Okay, so everything, all the joint supplying requires me to not be an individual, but for me to be an interdividual. Philosophically, there's a train of thought that goes that we don't actually exist other than in our relationships with other people. That I kind of I kind of tr- struggling to get my head around that because you know we're all into Descartes and you know I think therefore I am, but actually like my impact on this world is only down to my interactions with everybody else, because I could give this sermon in a closed room with nobody else there, it'd make zero difference. If I lived in a box, it would be very uncomfortable. But also, I'd have zero impact on anything. There'd be no purpose or identity or function to me being alive. So I would exist, but would I really exist? Would I really be living a life? So God's purpose is to have a people, a nation and a family. Um, so we, we can know uh, some of the verses. So, you know, like, you're my chosen people. You're my holy priesthood. I have called you to be a people and I will be your God. Okay, he's after people. He's not after a, an accumulation of individuals even. Okay, so one of the things in our postmodern thinking is that we think of a church as a gathering of many, many individuals. And then we go away as individuals. And that is actually how we function, by and large, because under sort of the capitalist mindset, um, the sort of post-enlightenment thinking, we are individuals. That, you know, I am the king of my own castle. You know, what you guys do is of no bother to me and don't bother me in what I'm doing. You know, if it doesn't hurt anybody else, I'm free to play, right? But that's not true. We're individuals. Society is predicated on the idea that I interact with other people within society. Even, like, modern society works that way. Modern society still works on the basis of community. It's just that we're becoming increasingly isolationist. But that is not how God works. If you look throughout the Old Testament, the major, major point that God brings up his people on is that the fact you have ceased to be a people that looks out for each other. So if you think of um, <coughs> the, the, the sort of the prophetic rages, if you will, railing against his people, you've ceased to do the things that you need to do. You've ceased to look after the widow, the orphan and the stranger. I am not angry at you because you're stupid. I'm not angry at you because you're not offering enough cows in sacrifice. I'm really cheesed off with you because you're not looking after people in society. 
Look at my law. And we get all antsy about when we talk about law. But look at my law. Every seven years, we need to repeal debts because we need to set society aright again. We need to have nobody that's been subjugated and therefore we need to have nobody that's in a position of subjugation. It's built into the legal tenets of the law. The idea of jubilee every 50 years so nobody can become a slave. Because it's right in society. Built into the law is the care of the widow and the orphan and the stranger, the alien, the foreigner. And God gets really ticked off when people stop doing that. Individuals are gifted uh, in the service of the connected whole. Uh, We exist in a oneness and a relational reality. And the church is to model this. Why did God choose the church to be his agent in the world? Because it's a bunch of failed people trying to get on and to show that it is possible. You know, he could have just had Messiah after Messiah after Messiah after Messiah. Why was it better that Jesus died and sent the Spirit? Because God didn't want one person. He wanted one body made up of many people, interrelated. That's why the church is important. Think of all of the important tenets in Scripture. Um, Healing, restoration, justice, peace, love, hope. All of these things only exist as we relate to each other. There would be no need for peace if I couldn't enter into conflict with somebody else. If I'm on my own... Love doesn't exist. If I'm on my own, there's no need for justice because I'm an equality all of myself. If I'm on my own, there's no need for restoration because I am me. It only is required if we live with each other. The major thrust of scripture is found in that idea. What is the most important thing? Love God and love neighbour. In fact, the way that Jesus ties it is that your love of God is intimately connected with how you treat your neighbour. And if we're told we're fuzzy about who neighbour is, it's the guy next door, right? It's the people who are just like me, who come to church on a Sunday morning. The same church, in the same stream, with the same sort of theological bent. They're my neighbours, you guys are my neighbours. No, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it's the enemy of that. And if we're fuzzy about that, Jesus says in another place... Love your enemy. So we have the full gamut of loving, our benevolent, loving, good father, and loving our enemy, whoever we can construe our enemy to be. Everything is predicated on the idea that I relate to people. So the very idea of us being a Barnabas community... Um, it's tremendously exciting um, just hearing it unpacked by Steve uh, over that period of time you know if we get this if we really understand what, what's going on here it, and I know like, we're apt to saying these things about our own churches um, but it is world changing because at the very heart of the idea of a Barnabas community is that we give ourselves away. Nothing in this world works that way. Churches don't even work that way, unfortunately. I, we need to claim the glory for God. You know, if we're a church, we have to put that, tag that on at the end. And we have to have our name on the strap line. We have to be acknowledged as the people that did the thing that was really cool so to be in a community where it's saying the fundamental idea the fundamental shape of it is that we're here we exist simply to help you on your journey and if you want to leave i.e. decrease our numbers by one or two or however many that's perfectly fine we exist to love you while you're with us and you can move on at any point, you can take the resources that we've invested in you and go somewhere else. That is counterculture. And when I say counterculture, I don't just mean in the hip, oh, I have to talk about that because, you know, I'm a millennial or something. 
I mean that it is actually counter to every single stream and narrative of culture that is in the world today. The fact that we're not making a name for ourselves, the fact that we're not trying to accumulate towards ourselves numbers, finances, wealth, fame, anything. Twi- Twitter, I don't go on Twitter. I know, I know the internet, I know all the Twitters. Um, <coughs> likes on Facebook, all of that stuff that we are not existing to accumulate to ourselves. And I'd suggest that that is fundamentally at the heart of God that that everything in the Bible points away from self, that it's self-giving. We call it kenosis, that it's self-emptying on behalf of everybody else. And that is exactly what we see in the Christ. So I am I'm, I'm particularly excited because I just think that that is an amazing, uh, just world-changing idea. And I think that that's how church infects society. Church is a community designed at its heart to serve other, whoever that other is. And other is deliberately other because they're not just like you. Because if they're just like you, it's really easy. But if they're completely other, then it's difficult. And that is what the love of God is all about. Why do we exist at all? Because God, in his infinite love, created something other than himself to love which includes the whole entirety of creation. Love only exists between and other. To help that other on their journey forwards is a deep altruism, to be a community that makes space for the extremes of society. It's completely crazy. It is completely crazy, and yet it's deeply, deeply, deeply in the heart of God. Because that's exactly what we see on the cross. We see a God poured out for humanity when humanity is at its most opposed to him. And the words that he says is, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. At the heart of the loving of God, of the forgiveness of God, is this deep, deep altruism making space for other. And, and to be a church that's kind of orientating itself towards that is amazing. So, of course, after that, I have to talk about Moana. Um, that would be the natural link. I don't know if you've seen Moana. Anybody seen Moana? One of the great joys of being a parent, as you guys will know, is that when you, you get a movie that kids like, you have to watch it every single day, multiple times a day, and you have to have the soundtrack in your car. So, as a result, I've I, I found deep, deep philosophical and theological meaning in Frozen, in Big Hero 6. It's great that uh, the girls are into Harry Potter at the moment, because, you know, there's a whole bunch of movies, so it's not, it never gets boring, but also, I really like that. But Moana is one of these films. And, and going back to the idea that um, name change is all about identity and purpose and potential, Moana is all about this. It's just a beautiful, beautiful film. I, I do dearly encourage you to torment yourself by watching it on loop uh, many, many, many times and having the soundtrack in your car. But the, but the great kind of the narrative of Moana is this idea of discovering who you are against all the narratives that are trying to tell you who you are. Um, so Moana, the title character, the Disney princess type character, is this... Um, I'm going to give away all of the storyline, by the way, so just be warned. Um, she's uh, the princess of a, of a Maori, tri- Maori tribe, so a Polynesian sort of culture, and it's all to do with the Polynesian creation myth and everything. And so she's the daughter of the chief, and she's being raised to be the next chief. And the whole idea is that she's bound to her tradition, she's bound to look after the people in a very, very specific way. You know, um, And all of the songs in great musicals, as you know, you know, tell you the narrative before it kind of arrives. And so they're tying, they're, you know, her father's trying to tie her down to the island and she's got this crazy grandmother who's just saying, you know, listen to your heart, you know, find out who you are for yourself. You know, listen to the sea because there's a great kind of narrative idea with it about the sea. And she finds herself being called to the sea and the sea actually calls her for a purpose. And, and this whole idea is that she wants to recapture the roots of her people. They used to be seafarers before they became an agrarian society. 
And she has this deep in her heart, and she has this conviction that to lead her people well, she needs to um, tap back into who they were at their very roots of this, these, these voyages. And this whole idea of um, um, traversing the horizon and finding new lands and populating new places. And the sea loves this idea because it loves the fact that the people used to travel by the sea and populate these islands, bring flourishing. But like she's being tied to this, you know, these are your people, you know, and going back to the language of possibility, this is your singular possibility in life, Moana. And whereas she's looking at the horizon, which is a great kind of pictorial metaphor, isn't it, about the wide open spaces of, of possibility. And another character in it is Maui. So he's the Polynesian uh, demigod. And so he, he, he's got all these tattoos on his skin. Um, and it's all about all the victories and all the stories of his life are tattooed on his skin in Polynesian style. Um, and, and, and he thrives off the adoration of humanity. Like, so his great deeds, his great power is all geared towards receiving the adoration of humans. So he does all these miraculous feats like pulling islands from the, 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 the floor of the sea and he teaches them how to, to sail the sea over like millennia. He's been involved with humanity and he lives off this um, adoration of mankind, this love of mankind, which becomes a big uh, plot point. And then the other plot point is the creator god, this um, Tefiti. Now, the whole thing is, is that Tefiti has had her heart stolen by Maui, incidentally, because they thought that the heart of Tefiti was what helped creation. So Maui stole the heart to give to humanity so that we could be governors of our own uh, future. And so all of creation starts to decay because Tefiti has lost her heart. And by losing her heart, you find out that she becomes this, this demonic god called Tekka, this destructive god that just breathes destruction all over the creation. And so these three main players have all kind of lost or find their identity that's somewhere external to themselves. So, so Moana is being tied to this identity of island life. Uh, but she, she's aware of something more, something pulling her. Maui is tied to the demonstration of his power being adored by humanity. And, and, and Tefiti has had her identity stolen. So the creator goddess has had her identity stolen. And she's now become this, this force of destruction and evil. And there are a couple of... Um, there are a couple of kind of cameos that, that work really well. So the grandmother is the one that encourages uh, Moana to listen to this inner voice. And, and there's this other character called Tamatoa, who's this giant crab who's played by Jermaine out of Flight of the Concords, and it's amazing. And he's all about, you know, he, he's this crab that, that's gathered loads of shiny objects from the bottom of the ocean, and he, and he makes himself beautiful. And everything's external. It's all about the appearances. And, and he has this, this wonderful song, which is actually kind of the axis around which the film evolves, I think. And he's encouraging, Ma you know, Maui, I'm going to have to kick your ass now because you, you, you're rubbish at being a god. And look at how shiny I am. You're not as good looking or as presentable as me. You know, I am, you know, and, and he threatens Moana. He says, you know, like, let me guess, your grandmother told you to listen to your heart. You know, be who you are. Be true to who you are. And he just says, that is rubbish. It's all about being shiny. And it's a fantastic song. It's like a David Bowie sort of rip-off. Um, <laughs> so these narratives are pulling at these characters. And, and basically, we get to the end. <clears throat> and they all start to find their true self. So Moana finally realises that the sea is called her not to help Maui be the hero, but for her to be the hero. And the reason why she can be the hero is because she's been on this journey where she realises that the narrative has tried to take her identity away from her, but that she has to have it restored to her. And then so she understands that Teka needs her heart restoring to her to become the creator goddess again. And she can only understand that because she's been through the journey herself. And Maui, thinking that he's supposed to be the hero, he gets defeated by Teka. And he feels a failure because his great prowess has failed him. And then he realises that actually he's there to help somebody else become successful. So he sacrifices himself to make a way for Moana. And then he rediscovers who he is, that he's not reliant upon his powers or the adoration of humanity, but that he is just Maui. And there's this beautiful... Um, I'll tell you what... I, <laughs> 
in the car listening to the soundtrack this kind of gets me into tears nearly every time I, <laughs> so if I, if I start crying now um, it's thoroughly embarrassing there's this song that Moana sings uh, at the end of the film um, and she says this to, to Fiti I've crossed the horizon to find you I know your name they have stolen the heart from inside you but this does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are. And that has me in bits because I feel like that's what Jesus is saying to each and every one of us. I've crossed the horizon to find you. They have stolen the heart from inside you. Whatever narrative, whatever narrative we are living within is trying to steal our identity and just part, trying to make us these isolated individuals that are part of the machinery that keeps the system going. That I need the fame, I need the glory, I need the, the, the prowess and everything. These things are trying to steal our heart from inside us, but somehow we know instinctively, or not instinctively, but by the Spirit, that this is not who we are. I'm not built just to do a nine to five to pay my taxes to keep my head down and then to find fame and fortune vicariously through the things i'm not here to exploit everybody to make a name for myself i'm here to be like christ and pull myself out for others and that's where true fulfillment comes as as a parent look i'm not there to receive the adoration of my kids how weird does that seem Instinctively, we know we need to pour ourselves out for our children to enable them to go further and beyond and not be a clone of me and not, not be limited by my, my, the ceiling that I've reached, but that they could go and be not me, that I could support them in being not like me and be, going beyond me. <clears throat> so this this beautiful idea within this Moana film of finding yourself against all the narratives and of course there's a, a rampant sort of individualism within Moana but even within there once Maui is liberated from, from the love of people he's able to lay himself down for somebody else and once Moana finds who she truly is she's able to lead her people with the blessing of the ocean to find new islands and populate new islands and look after her people and see them flourish so even within finding themselves, there's something of the prosperity and flourishing of other people that occurs. Um, <clears throat> we'll skip over. I was going to talk about the name of Jesus Christ. Because that seems important, but I'll miss that bit, actually. Um, kind of weird, though, right? A Jewish name and a Greek name. That's the name that we're given. It, sh- it should really be Jesus the Messiah, right? because Messiah is a Hebrew name and Jesus is a Hebrew name but no, the name that we know Christ by is Jesus Christ and there's something beautiful I was going to read it actually I'm doing it, aren't I? I said I'm not going to do it and I'm going to do it but the whole point is is that Jesus is part of the lineage of Israel so he's called Jesus which means God who saves the former Joshua but the name that we know by is Jesus Christ not Jesus Messiah but Jesus Christ Christ is the Greek translation of messiah and so it's saying to us even within his name that it starts from this people but it goes to flourish in all the earth so even the name of jesus the name by which we're saved the name above all of the names is a name that pushes us from within our narrow confines of a singular people to be a blessing to all the earth <clears throat> and that does actually lead me on to the night the next bit so let's look at a few of these name changes i'm going to rely on your knowledge of scripture rather than turn into everything now so Abram means exalted father. So notice, in the name of Abraham formerly, Abram, the singular nature of his name. He is a exalted father, an exalted father. And with that singularity of identity, there is a deliberate limitation of possibility. To further compound this, or to explain this even more he's childless at an extreme old age that is the definition of limited possibility as in he has zero chance of progeny 
There is no more possibility. And when I talk about possibility, it's probably easier to think about it as hope. There is no more hope for him. Because he will die and there will be nothing beyond him. Abram, the exalted father. But God comes along and he changes his name to Abraham. When it's only a slight change, but it means father of a multitude. So you know immediately from going from being just the exalted father, singular, to a father of a multitude, the possibility has occurred in his life. And then he goes from being Abraham, the old man with no progeny, to being Abraham, the man with a possibility. (coughs) And that is tied into the promises of God. There is an articulation after the name change of the promises of God to be fruitful and multiply and fill and subdue all of the earth. So with the name change comes possibility and promise. Sarai, which means my princess, is changed to Sarah, which means princess. Now that's a very subtle change, right? But my princess, my princess. Notice the singularity of identity. Notice the limitation of possibility. Because you're just my princess. But if I change your name to princess, you can be anybody's princess. You could be the princess of a great multitude. Which is handy because I've already promised your husband about having a great multitude. She's barren. So the fact that she hasn't had kids isn't just the only problem. The problem is is that she couldn't have kids. That, again, is a representation of the limitation of possibility. But by changing her name and changing her husband's name, (coughs) possibility has been expanded. (coughs) Jacob, the one who grasped the heel, which is obviously another way of saying cunning. (coughs) Up until this point, as Jacob, he has lived by his wit. He's avoided confrontation by his smarts so if you read his story it's really interesting because he gets out of situations um, oh my thing's not moving he gets out of situations by being clever (coughs) (coughs) the point of his name change to Israel is just before he's going to encounter the brother that he's cheated of his birthright and he knows that Esau has become a great people his brother was, also, was always the rugged, um, lumberjack, older brother. And he was always the clever little one. So now his brother's coming back with the great people. Jacob is fearful for his life because his brother could stomp all over him. And he's going to lose everything by his cutting that he's gathered. What happens to him? This man who has avoided confrontation by his smarts. He physically wrestles with an angel of the Lord. That is confrontation times ten, isn't it? <clears throat> this man who's avoided confrontation wrestles with a representative of God. <clears throat> and that person changes his name to wrestles with God. Now that cuts two ways. That, that, that name because the nation of Israel obviously it has its um, positive moments with God but it has many 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 negative moments where it is a pain in the backside to God it wrestles with God but it has this idea that you know what I'm going to remind you the one who is afraid of confrontation that you've stood toe to toe with God and I'm going to give you a limp so that you remember it all the days of your life and so what happens next <coughs> He has the courage to confront his brother. Which is genius because that opens up new possibilities. Reconciliation brings new possibilities. He was limited because he was going to get stomped all over by his older brother in his head. Not really. So he had a self-imposed limitation of possibility, of potential, of hope. But then he encounters the Lord, his name gets changed, and then he's able to reconcile with his brother. And then you see in the text, please go and read these things, that he goes on to flourish even more and he becomes the people. And obviously the nation of Israel takes its name from him. So we see that the name change is never just to do with the individual, it's to do with possibility, flourishing, and a people in the earth. Let's move into the New Testament then. 
Um, Simon Peter. And this is why it's important to catch the community thing, because I remember a time me and Peter had a, a discussion, humorously, of course, about who's got the better name. Because <laughs> Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter. <coughs> and so Peter won that one. But it's never to do with the individual. Let's just get that straight. So Simon the fisherman, possibility is limited because he's a fisherman. And he's just going to go into the family business and become another fisherman who's going to have kids who will be fishermen. That is his possibility. (coughs) Peter, however, is the rock upon which the church is founded upon. He's moved from this individual that's just going to carry on in his traditional line and he's become the one who's going to be the cornerstone. Not the cornerstone, because Jesus is the cornerstone. Let's get that right. He's going to become one of the foundational pillars of the church. So he's moved from having this singular possibility to a multitude of possibility. And it's a people in the earth for God. <coughs> Saul, the persecuted Pharisee. His possibility is limited because he is always the Pharisee. He's just going to get better and better at that. But the problem is, is Jesus has come, which has sounded the fulfilment of Judaism. So his whole purpose is limited by how successful Christianity can become. The fulfilment of Saul is to kill off the Christian church. Limited possibility, the end of possibility. However, Paul the apostle to the Gentiles, the one who pioneers the way for the church to break out from beyond this limitation to the rest of the world. So the name change is connected with possibility and potential and a people in the world. Joseph, a diaspora Jewish Levite. He is limited Because the old covenant that does not recognise the Messiah is limited in its possibility because the Messiah has come. He becomes Barnabas. This Steve has already said, the son of encouragement or the son of the prophet. And the name change is again connected with possibility. Even the physical name change is connected with possibility but the fact that he goes and enacts that and brings in Paul like Steve's already said again go and listen to those three messages creates possibility where there was no possibility so the interdividual then and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish in this point made to be one as God is one we are created to be one as God is one in Genesis 1.26 it says let us and it's a bit like um, it's playing a bit fast and loose with the text to suggest that implies trinity um, but the language of Genesis 1 is always referring to God as a plurality it says Elohim which means the powers gender neutral as well by the way um, there's always a plura- plurality in God But there's also a singularity in his purpose. Elohim is always creating. To whatever vehicle, Genesis 1. And he says, let us, Elohims, make man in our image. And he is called Elohim until Genesis 2.4. Genesis 1 should probably end at Genesis 2.3 if you read the text. Um, and then, after Genesis 2-4, it becomes Elohim Yahweh. Or Elohim Adonai, because we, you, know, you can't say Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's the name. So, we'd recognise that as Elohim Adonai from Genesis 2-4 onwards. So, the change in God's name... Um, like we could put it down, if we were doing historical criticism, we could say that Genesis 1 was written by um, a certain writer... Um, and then Genesis 2-4 was written by another editor a subsequent editor which is fine it doesn't make any difference to the text but it's tied with possibility because Elohim the power is the creator and Elohim Yahweh is God the breath what happens in Genesis 2 you have the narrative where God breathes into man in Genesis 1 the narrative of the creation of man is just let's make man in our image but when he becomes Elohim Yahweh he becomes the God who breathes 
and he becomes the God who enables creation to flourish. So notice the transition in Genesis 1 where creation just happens, where you could argue for a watchmaker God. Whereas in Genesis 2, when he, becomes, when he changes his name to Elohim Yahweh, that's when God relates to creation. He is relational in creation then, because he, he interacts with mankind. He interacts with the animals after Genesis 2.4. So the name change is always tied to possibility and relationship. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The famous prayer of the Jews. They say it today. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Okay, they pray that every day. The Lord our God is one. But notice, this comes at the start of the Ten Commandments. And that is not a limitation, but an explanation of possibility. Go, be my people, be my separate people, be my identifiable people in all the earth. You are different to the rest of the peoples on the earth because you are mine and I am one. The name change is linked. The oneness of God is linked to relation, relational, to being relational. Let's go. John 17.11, Jesus in his high priestly prayer says that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus came to enact a true humanity and deliver us from a competitive, acquisitive counter-narrative which sets person against person. The problem with being individuals is, is that I am always competing with you for the same space, for the same resources, for the same power and influence. I will always be competing with you. This is why democracy and capitalism and mutually exclusive in the end. Because I will always be competing with you as an individual. But Jesus says, let them be one as we are one in mutual, serving, cooperation, relational, individuality. A lot of big words there. So, um, being one as God is one in Genesis. Talks about man. And they're not two individuals together, Adam and Eve, but they are inter-individuals. So turn with me to Genesis. This is quite an important point, which I've never really picked up on before. So and this is pretty much the end, by the way. So God created man in his image, male and female. They were not two individuals, but they were two individuals to re- reflect the oneness of God. Genesis 2.24 For this reason man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So there's something to do with these two individuals being individuals and not really being recognised as two discrete people. And there's something with not being ashamed in that. But the full narrative in Genesis 3 we have this separation of their individuality. God has made them to be one. And he talks about their oneness, but all of a sudden, when the snake enters the scene, they become two individuals who are opposed to one another. And I'd never seen this before, but they were made to be one, and then somehow they became two. Because Eve does something unilaterally on her own. Even though Adam's probably stood there, she does it on her own. So the snake addresses her directly, which is why the snake is cunning, because he separates what God has made one. Mm. You know, it says in the New Testament, let no man put asunder what God has put together. And what happens when they become two individuals? They have conflict. Mm. God, this woman, so it's no longer the person that's by my side and that we're connected to deeply, it's this woman did this thing. And I did this thing, but we're two separate people in this. They've become rivals for the same thing. And we see this. We see this play out in Cain and Abel. Because after all of the fall happened, it goes on to say they had relations. Uh huh. And they had Cain and Abel. And what happens with Cain and Abel? They are not a community together. They are drastically opposed to one another. Look at even how they offer their sacrifice to God. One sacrifice is of living animals, and one sacrifice is of the fruit of the earth. 
their orientation in life is completely different. And they compete for the affections of God. They're not joined, they're not brotherly, but they're competitors because they're individuals, not interdividuals. And, and brilliantly, Cain says this, Am I my brother's keeper? And it gets left hanging. And I'd suggest that Jesus answers that question emphatically by saying, yes, and even your enemy is your brother. <clears throat> so church, we are not a collection of individuals, but individuals. We are here to serve one another. Our existence is predicated on me pouring out my gifts for everybody else, not for my own benefit. You pouring out your gifts for everybody else, not for your benefit. And that's how we work. And that's how society is impacted by us, because we can go and be a community that in opens its arms continuously to the communities of the earth that are living in different narratives. And we can say, look, there is a better way. How do we know there's a better way? Because Jesus modelled that better way and he sent his spirit to dwell within us that we could live in that way. That Jesus is the true human and we are learning what it is to be true humans. We haven't perfected it, we're learning what it is. And that's why community works, because we're still figuring out what it looks like to love other. We are, as church, interacting, self-giving models of the Trinity and the original plan of being in his image. A plurality being in the image of the one. Name change is always tied to community. Always tied to individuals. Always tied to relationship. And it, through that, it enacts promise and possibility. And it delivers a message a physical, visceral message of possibility to those who have limited or lost possibility or lost hope. So if we walked out into the community now, we would encounter various individuals, some of which would be, have been written off. You are no good. They have been given other names by society. You are poor, you are rich, you are a politician, you are a scum of the earth. You, you are poor, you have no hope, you, you, you're, on, you're on drugs, you've got no hope of getting a job, you're borderline uh, falling through the gaps of society, you have got no hope. And we are here as church in this place physically enacting what it looks like to have possibility and not just to say, look, we've got hope, you haven't, because sometimes that's what the good news is all about, isn't it? If you don't have Christ, you don't have any hope. So either come into our little enclave or, or go to hell, literally. But we're here not to build our little enclave, but we're here to reach out and say, look, um, I'm a failed individual, but these guys love me, <laughs> they see me every Sunday, they deal with all of my junk. And hey, you may or may not be as failed as me, but these same people will look after you and care for you because they are failed individuals and God looks after them and cares for them. So I hope that made sense. Amen.